0: Welcome to Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moran, Editorial Director of Fixed Income News Australia. Join me every week as I talk about the latest news, views and education in fixed income investment. I'll be joined by industry experts from Australia and across the globe. Hello, welcome to the Fixated Podcast. Today, I am absolutely honoured to have Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Global Bonds Robert Tipp from PGM. Now, PGM is one of the top ten global asset managers with 1.5 trillion US dollars in funds under advice. Hello, Robert. How are you today? And what what's it been like in New York?
1: All right. Well, it's a beautiful fall day. You know, early fall. So we still have some uh, flowers and color out there, but also some of the leaves are turning. So one of our rare temperate moments with good scenery as well here.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Um, let's start. You've had a really interesting global career, and today I'm hoping you can give our audience an insight into your global perspective. Do you think developed countries with massive debt burdens are heading towards a Japanese-style economy?
1: Well, yes and no, and that's a a great place to start. Uh, You know, I'm in the the fixed interest area and uh, have been doing this for, uh, you know, over three decades and have heard that question from the, the very beginning. And uh, it seems very counterintuitive. People have been expecting higher debt levels to push up interest rates. And I think that is the case in frontier markets. And it is the case in emerging markets where the credit risk is, is very apparent. But what we've seen in developed markets, and I think the die was already cast by the time we got to 2000s, we'd seen two decades of very stark examples. The first was in the United States in the 80s, and uh, where we had a, a spectacular rise in the debt to GDP ratio. Um, by modern standards, it, it would look small. But for the day, people were quite concerned about the deficits and the rising debt burden in the 80s. And yet the interest rates fell throughout the decade. Then you move on to the 90s. And at that point, it was becoming apparent to me and, and some others that the demographics in the world, the aging demographics, uh, may drive a lower inflation world as what we were seeing in Japan uh, to a lesser gradation, but but still played out where there was less demand for durable goods, less demand for money, less borrowing, and not the kind of Uh, post-war booming household formations and so on that could naturally push up inflation. Uh, The question was asked in Japan, though, as uh, they were going through their uh, deflation fears and racking up huge budget deficits, isn't this going to break? And aren't we going to see the interest rates in Japan go soaring? And of course, what we saw is that in the United States. During that decade, when the budget deficit was coming down, the interest rates came down. But in Japan, where the uh, budget deficit was high, debt to GDP ratios were rising, the interest rates fell throughout the decade. Um, But you didn't have a controlled experiment. So we never know exactly what the drivers are. And uh, my suspicion, I think most others, for that decade was that the driver of the falling rates was the falling inflation. You know, like you saw in Australia uh, in those decades, the the restructurings of the labor markets, uh, the more inflation-focused central banking uh, brought down inflation, brought down interest rates, uh, and that was the the overarching theme. But you, you could see that simply rising debt levels uh, could could not be taken as, uh, you know, as a, something that w- would push interest rates up as a foregone conclusion by any stretch.
0: So how do you feel like the US and Australia are, are comparing to Japan? Are we sort of headed that way or you think it's totally different dynamics? Of course, younger populations perhaps um, prepared to take immigrants, uh, la- different labour markets. What are your thoughts
1: there? Sure. Well, you know, in the case of Japan, uh, you know, under uh, the radar to to foreigners and so on, part of Abenomics, uh, in addition to making it uh, possible for more of the population to participate in the workforce, there's also been a push for immigration. And uh, people are not coming in and getting citizenship, but they're getting uh, work visas. And um, so it's into the several hundred thousands, which makes a, a significant difference uh, in their economy. And so I think the Abenomics uh, was a real, um, you know, let's start from scratch. What, what can we do to make life better in an aging society? And also, how can we counteract that? Immigration was, was one way uh, to help stabilize the situation. The United States and Australia You mentioned younger populations. We have more of evergreen type populations because of the the population growth. And I think it's important to strip away when looking at economies, this aging in Japan and now shrinking workforce in China uh, compared against countries like the United States and Australia, where you have a growing population in the US and even more rapidly so in Australia. Now, we really need to look at per capita data. Uh, is it a high pace of growth that's really benefiting the median worker and, and so on? Um, but the aging demographic uh, strikes uh, uh, much less dramatically in the United States and Australia. Um, but in the United States, we have seen you know, a, a leveling off. Uh, what you see is in a, a young economy – uh, that you have you know, rising uh, home sales, rising auto sales on, on an ongoing basis. In a developed economy, you generally see those sales kind of level off. And once you get to that kind of peak goods, a, a stable run rate of auto sales or houses and so on, uh, then your borrowing needs, your capital expenditure needs, they really level off. And uh, so I think the whole world is getting impacted now not by Japan, but by China. And so China really hit peak goods about two to five years ago, where auto sales went from a million cars a year in 2000 to 30 million cars a year a few years back. But it has leveled off. Now, they jump on the brake, jump on the gas uh, to try to you know manage their economy, and they've done a phenomenal job of it. You've probably seen a a greater increase in living standards for more people for a longer period of time than the world has ever seen. Um, But they've gotten to the point where now they are uh, crossing uh, two bridges. The one is that they've gone from a growing workforce to a shrinking workforce. The other is that they have gone from a developing economy to a more mature economy so the the importance of this for the world is that the rest of the world, I think the last twenty years, has been working at a breakneck speed to uh, get resources out of the ground and to uh, work with China on supply and demand chains to both uh, import more from China as they've been a net exporter, but also to sell into China the things that they need for their development. And now all of that is going into a much, uh, a much more stable phase. And so rates of growth, for example, across Southeast Asia pre-COVID, you know, were really moderating. And I think that's a trend that will reemerge once we get past the noise of, of COVID. Um, but between the U.S. and Australia, the demographics may be similar, but the government policies have been very different. And uh, I think, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, um, you know, that will differentiate the economic performance of, of the two countries.
0: So interesting. Going now to debt and government debt and debt burdens, what happens when the stimulus, when the governments take their foot off, off the gas and start applying the brake?
1: Um, you know, uh, I, I would say that, You know, my experience with that has been that uh, it looks horrific on the face of it. It looks like an incredible headwind, but in reality, it it usually just passes. And let me give you a a couple examples. In the United States, in two thousand nine, there was a massive amount of fiscal stimulus that went into the economy, and um, there were a lot of crises that hit. Uh, in the years that came, and there was a fiscal sequester and so on, but unless you um, in the in the absence of of those kinds of disturbances, most of it really kind of blended into the woodwork. Um, but some parts, you know, you could you could definitely see, but they were only at at certain critical points. In the United States, we are already, you know four to six, three to six months into the fiscal headwind, and the economy is is doing fine. It's operating at a very high level. The rate of growth is decelerating. The underlying rate of inflation is rapidly decelerating, but you're not going from a really solid expansion to a contraction. You're just migrating towards a more natural rate. Um, and so that's uh, a big relief. And my guess is that in, in most um, developed countries, it is going to be a fairly smooth transition as the, um, the reopenings uh, kind of dovetail well with the fiscal stimulus coming off.
0: So what's your thoughts on on rates and inflation? How do you see that Factors are uh, playing into to to particular well, particularly rates. Although I know a lot of our listeners are very concerned about inflation at this point.
1: Sure, yeah, and uh, and I think it's going to be an interesting contrast between the United States and, and Australia on these fronts. That in the end is going to have a very similar result. Um, I mean, I think you know uh, we have to keep an open mind about what the outcome is going to be. Uh, on the inflation front and growth and everything else, you know in terms of what the post-COVID world is going to look like. Um, but if you look very closely at the data so far, um, I think you can take uh, a pretty good guess at it. And I'll go through the US data since I'm most familiar with that. So in the US, um, we saw very distinctive uh, increases in prices. Uh, You know, in your household goods, in automobiles, in the initial phases of the crisis, when it turned out that people were voracious in terms of consumption of some uh, household items, but also things like cars, unexpected demand uh, led to very high increases in prices and housing as well, that there is some kind of change in people's minds uh, that was going to create a systematically stronger housing market. This has been a, a global phenomenon. There was a great deal of fiscal stimulus and little, literally cash came in the mail to people and it was uh, sent out whether people were working or not. And this took personal income to record levels and you saw spectacular consumption and a big increase in prices. Now, as soon as that passed and people were still kind of locked down heading into the end of the year inflation dwindled off to nothing and um so and also your economic growth leveled off it didn't collapse back to where it was before the stimulus happened but it really leveled off at those high levels so that was the first reassuring go at it in my mind that where we were going to end up three to five years down the road was going to look a lot more like the pre-covid world than not we're going to go back to the demographics and high debt burdens and so on, um, keeping growth at moderate levels and, and intense global competition, keeping inflation low. OK, so then we reopened the economy in the United States in, in, uh, in the spring. Everybody got their vaccines and, uh, you know, Americans are quite adventurous and things exploded on the economic front and there was more stimulus. So we saw incredible inflation um, in, uh, say, the uh, second quarter. I mean, you were pushing double-digit rates. Um, The thing that, um, though, and and I have to, you know, look at the numbers. I just can't believe it. In the second quarter, you know, you were printing headline inflation for the month at eight-tenths, six-tenths, nine-tenths you know, which annualizes to double-digit, low double-digit rates. Now, uh, we've seen those headline numbers come down the last few months on a core basis between, say, September and August in the United States. Inflation has only amounted to three-tenths in total, which would be kind of a 1.8, uh, you know, if I took a simple extrapolation. Um, and at a, uh, a, an even tighter core level, if you take out shelter, Um, it's only been a couple tenths of a percent for the two months. So you'd be getting close to a 1% annualized rate. So once again, we're seeing some parts of inflation have crashed down to very low levels um, as some of the initial euphoria of the uh, unlocking has passed. The one area that has stayed pretty firm, though, is housing. House prices have remained firm, and that passes through into the rent calculations. but if you ask me now, what are we going to see a year from now? Um, and we are seeing moderation on the economic side, on the job growth side. That you know, it's going to be a year until the Fed can really think about raising rates. They're going to announce taper in the fourth quarter. They'll start. Maybe they'll be done by the middle of twenty twenty two. Then they'll have to make sure you know all the wheels don't fall off the wagon for a couple months, and then they can really think about raising rates. Um, at that point, it strikes me, you will have probably seen a lot of moderation in growth and a lot of moderation in inflation, and that the one area that might be sticky is rents. But if people are having uh, kind of a, a shift in preferences, it's not clear to me that the Fed is supposed to circumvent the market, um, that some of these things, price pressures, you know, they weren't happy with uh, – they, they want to have a high-pressure economy get fully employed then you need higher wages to pull people back in. If you want there to be enough housing stock for the kinds of ways that people want to live now, you know, you have to let that go. So this would be a relative price shift. Um, So I think we are seeing on balance, the inflation numbers moderate. It's not exactly like it was before. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that overall, uh, we're we're going through a crazy period because we've we've seen in addition to the reopenings the uh, surge in commodity prices and energy prices for various reasons, and we're talking about the world's
0: that was actually my next question about the energy and oil and oh yeah you know distribution of goods you know that sure. that must feed into inflation somewhat
1: um- well absolutely but it's also a huge tax. And we're, so far, we're focusing on the world's strongest economies. After we moved off of Japan, talking about Australia, the U.S., you know, some of your strongest DM economies. If you look at Europe, you know, they've already had about six months of um, kind of stagnating industrial production, um, and that's a huge driver of their economy. So there were questions before the energy prices went up about sustainability. And now this is going to be a huge tax on people's incomes. And um, uh, so, yes, it is pushing up inflation. It's going to make people want to hike rates. The hawkish central bankers want to hike rates. But if they're not full employment and they're seeing signs that this is isolated and due to shortages and not, you know, a booming underlying growth dynamic, I I think there may be a lot more patience than what's getting priced into the market.
0: That's really interesting uh, to hear you say that. Um, For years and years I've heard that people talk about there's going to be a bond crash and um, it's on the horizon, interest rates are going to move up Um, and we've seen the the US and the Australian 10-year government bond rates, you know, they're on a a steady climb at the moment. Do you have any thoughts on on government bond rates and where they might flatline or, or find some stability?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, my uh, you know impression is that while um, in the 80s and 90s inflation was brought under control, um, and 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 the central bankers, you know, taking the lead from your neighbors, uh, picked these inflation targets, and there have been some you know modulations in the exact targets for inflation, but two percent seems to be the universal standard, and. When I look back at history, say in the 19th century, the 18th century, and you're looking at what happened, you know, you had real economies and and there's globalization and competition in goods and quality adjusted. The prices of most goods tended to be in deflation unless you were in a major war. And, you know, I think if you think about the things, you know, you look around that you see. um. You know, they all tend to be in a state of quality, adjusted price stability. Um, But at any rate, these 2% targets, they don't seem to be easily achievable. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that uh, central bankers around the world, it strikes me, have fallen into a trap. So they've picked a target for inflation and they want to pursue it. Uh, And they think that it is definitely achievable. And I think, uh, you know, it may only be achievable uh, if they create other distortions in the economy by running interest rates too low, but they don't seem to care. And so I think, uh, and in some cases, like in Europe, where they've taken the short rate to minus 50 basis points, if if you put yourself in, in the position of the average European investor, uh, who's trying to save for retirement and an income? If you tell me you're going to burn a half percent of my money every year, I probably think I need to save more and consume less. So it strikes me, you know, because you know, if you're in a young economy and you're you're purchasing now for your future, for your greater durable goods needs in the future, and you have really low interest rates, you're borrowing and buying, and that's fantastic. But that's not what we have. We have places that have the durable goods. They're trying to prepare and become well saved to retire, and you have a zero cash rate or you have a, a negative cash rate, and I think that 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 is uh, is counterproductive. But the central banks are wedded to this. Uh, I don't see any evidence that the ECB is going to go away from negative rates. In fact, they appear to be a kind of a QE infinity. Um, the Fed seems, uh, you know, very determined and disappointed that inflation was running between one and a half and two. They want it to be two. They're going to create a high-pressure economy, keep interest rates very low. Um, and, um, and in Australia, uh, similarly, uh, there's disappointment at the central bank that they want a hotter economy and they want real wage growth. So what I think is happening is that monetary policy and even fiscal policy to some extent – is a short-term fiscal, uh, short-term cyclical palliative. You get into a fix. You cut rates. What are you really doing when you're cutting rates? You're encouraging borrowing to consume and invest that would not have normally happened. So it doesn't strike me as particularly healthy. But it also everybody, you know, in when you're taking your economics class, will tell you this will not structurally change the economy. This is a short-term fix. So these central bankers are using a short-term palliative, trying to get a long-term, cyclical, different result for the economy, or structurally a different result for the economy. I don't think it's going to happen, but what it's going to do for in terms of answering the question is keep rates low. So if it turns out that the RBA is going to be between 0 and 1% for the foreseeable future, then 2% on a 10-year Australian government bond strikes me as high. And the same is true in the United States, a very similar re- uh, re- range for different reasons. In the United States, we are a voracious borrower, um, and our government bonds trade at higher yields um, than unsecured swap rates between banks, uh, referred to as OIS, um, at the back end of the curve. Australia, on the other hand, is a very high quality credit where there is some. Uh, notion in everybody's mind that the government should not have a huge debt-to-GDP ratio and should not run a massive budget deficit. In the United States, we do not share that conception. And uh, so um, uh, we will be running, but we have a lower, naturally, uh, a lower rate of growth in, in our economy because we have slower population growth. So we will have a lower rate of growth, but kind of an inferior credit, and we will be in that 1% to 2% range. Australia, I think, in, in my opinion, is is a, a better credit, um, but will have a higher growth rate, and so we'll end up being in a very similar, uh, I would say zip code, but maybe it's postal code, uh, for those interest rates going forward as the central banks end up you know, locked at these very low levels. And I think that will be, on average, though, a good investment environment. Um, because it will encourage people to stay in the bond market, to outperform cash, um, and will we'll support the kinds of equity valuations that we see these days.
0: That's really insightful. Thank you so much. I want to sort of switch gear a little bit now and talk about ESG investments, environmental, uh, social governance, uh, um, and governance, and the swing towards investors looking for those sorts of investments. I'm just wondering about what you're witnessing in the US.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing in the U.S., I think, you know, we're not at the absolute trailing edge on this topic, but we're not at the leading edge, which is coming more from from Europe. And um, and in the the last administration, the Department of Labor was taking kind of an active edge, discouraging investors from risking giving up return in order to pursue ESG, say, at the pension fund plan sponsor level. So now uh, the Department of Labor is trying to um, get out of that and saying, oh, well, listen, you know, you can really think about the long term and take these ESG things into consideration, uh, which kind of means, you know, we're not going to put your feet to the fire if you end up having worse short-term performance because you can say you're really doing this for the long term. So there's greater latitude and at the individual level, um, you know, especially, uh, well, uh, y- you are seeing interest there. It varies, you know, by, by demographic and, and, and other factors, but there is an increase. Um, but then you're seeing, you know, as those products are coming out, you're seeing a race to catch up and to figure out whether there's something legitimate there behind the label or not. Um so that whole process is going on. Um what I think is and 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 internally every investment manager is is dealing with this to figure out what their clients want because there's a huge range uh from those that are are strictly on a return seeking basis and so the ESG matters if it's going to hurt returns um to those that are more impact based almost. So while that's all going on we've had this energy crisis hit. And um, that is really a fascinating thing. And I think in the long run, um, you know, could be a godsend in some ways because what's happening is uh, they're saying, oh my God, you know, these prices are soaring because we've had underinvestment um, in these fossil fuel areas. And, um, you know, and then you have spectacular earnings performance from, Those industries, which are supposed to be, um, you know, in their twilight years of profitability, uh, all of a sudden are booming. And so I think, you know, people have to think realistically uh, about transition and how to make sure that uh, if that is the direction that everything goes and in the countries where that is the direction that it goes, that you don't leave yourself uh, unduly vulnerable. Um, to the vagaries of the market and end up, you know, with the lights out uh, and, and paying a lot, you know, to get them on when they're on.
0: Oh, look, I couldn't agree more. I, I think of um, people in developing countries like India that might not yet have refrigeration, let alone air conditioning, you know, how about we all turn off our, our refrigeration and our air con for, for the summer? You know, who would like that?
1: Yeah, but uh, there, there are a lot of things going on, I think, um you know, there have been very interesting, uh, you know, micro studies of introducing solar in India and uh, and and local networks of power um, where the power is shared and bought and sold across small households, which are then not dependent on a central grid, which is great in a place that has monsoons. Um, so there there appear to be things out there that could help people. Um and and to your point you know if you don't have india on board you know what do you really have and then if you get india on board who's going to pay for it so it's it's tough but one of the the things that's out there too is there are a lot of tariffs and um you know is is china flooding the market with solar panels well let's put the tariffs on well what does that do you know to the natural market uh dynamics which you know, may get people to a cleaner uh, source of energy in in a natural market way. So a lot of uh, a lot of ups and downs in, in that area, um, but definitely one that has serious focus from from all investment managers, us included, in terms of getting ways to formulaically include this in the investment management in a way that fits every client and that can be substantiated. You know, through your internal research, as um, Focused on achieving, you know, what you're trying to achieve. It's very important that
0: you can. They're held to account for their green claims, or that there is a measure, or or um, some something that gives you comfort that what you're actually investing in is 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 helping the planet or whatever, yeah, whatever other other goal that it has. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Evergrande and the Chinese property market and developers. You know, for a while there, it looked like it might sort of be the next Lehman Brothers to rock
1: global markets.
0: Is it still on your radar? Are you still concerned about property developers in China?
1: Yes, and, um, but maybe not so much so in, in the way uh, that you would think. So in terms of the Lehman aspect, so the, the, uh, the Evergrande, you know, has a, a manageable amount of debt that is issued outside of China. And, um, you know, is marked down. And if there was going to be a global impact of them going out of business on the world from their uh, financial impact, I think you would be seeing about it. You'd be hearing about it. Um, I think it is very important for China's economy. But let me come back to that. First, contrasting with Lehman Brothers, the problem there was that we were pre-central clearing of a lot of derivatives. And so everybody looked at each other and said, you know, we didn't really think that would happen. And we have 8,000 unconfirmed swap transactions with Lehman that we think probably are mostly offsetting, but we don't know. And, and, and you're talking trillions of dollars of, of outstanding liabilities that people had to net off. And, and, um, and you're in the middle of an environment where even the normal loans that were out there in the world uh, on so much of the real estate uh, in the U.S. was deeply underwater and had been sold everywhere as being low risk. And there was a lot of leverage. So since then, a lot of the investing that's done that's more speculative is done on an unlevered basis. And so when somebody you know goes down, you don't have five X. You know, when X defaults, you don't have five X of sales that need to go through, and um, uh, and you don't have a world where there's a, a vast overleveraging uh, of, of various things, and you don't have a, a huge uncertain distribution of the risk across the world's financial sector. So I think there was that Monday when everybody said oh, you know, we need to get our arms around this. And then by Friday, I think they kind of had. So, um, but having said that, China is decelerating and um, they have done uh, their development in a way that's very different than the way the U.S. or Australia has, where we've um, mostly through our our corporations in the case of, uh, well, in the United States, everybody is a huge borrower. In Australia, it's more the, the, house, the uh, households and companies. Um, and the, the current account is, is quite negative uh, for our countries. China, on the other hand, has run a surplus, has run a trade surplus throughout, and, uh, and generally a large current account surplus. They've kept the capital account closed, so their development has been done with their own money and their borrowing done in their currency. And that has made them incredibly resilient. The first time I think we really saw that was in 97 uh, with the Asia crisis, um, didn't devalue their currency, and uh, had a a banking crisis that they bailed out domestically. And um, so it's been very resilient. Um, I think, though, one of the problems of the capital account uh, and the nation markets there is people have no place to put their money. And so it is disproportionately in real estate. Now, the real estate is not generally not highly levered. Um, they've had high uh, you know down payment requirements as you buy your second and third homes. Um, but if you think about you know China, you know the mutual fund business is very new. You're only allowed to send so much money out of the country every year. You know where are you going to put the money in the bank in real estate? So um, there is, uh, I, I think, going to be a, a big impact on their economy, uh, a slowdown in their growth rate, and that may have you know knock-on effects globally in terms of the deceleration that we were talking about earlier. That was going to happen anyhow because their development is slowing down, their urbanization, and they're into a, a shrinking workforce mode at this point. So I think. It's going to be, you know, if people hadn't realized the kind of cresting and the rapid deceleration of China growth going from 12 to 10 to 8 to 6, I think when it goes from 8 to 6 to 4, you know, then it, it's it's definitely going to be on, on people's radar. I, I, it's not going to be a terrible environment, but I but I think it's going to be different.
0: We're not obviously going to have the growth that we've had um by investing into China, which sort of brings me into PGM and how you're positioning your portfolios at the moment, particularly obviously fixed income and and where you see value in in the market at the moment.
1: Sure. So uh, I think that uh, we're at at an interesting point where in economic recoveries um, there is usually a point that creates a lot of value in the bond market. And I think that's what this year is. I mean, uh, in Australia, for example, before COVID, COVID, interest rates were, you know, had kind of fallen to levels below where they are now. And so uh, my guess is that eventually people are going to wrap their minds around the fact that this is temporary. And it's the same. There's been a global sell-off in bonds. And this bear steepening, you know, may sound ridiculous to think that. You know, 160 on the 10 year 2% area um, in, in, in Australia is, is going to be, uh, you know, a super buy. Um, but if interest rates end up fluctuating, you know, between here and 50 basis points lower on average, it will have been an opportunity to lock in the higher income. And uh, so I think that the government bond yields are at attractive levels at this point. Um, but beyond that, we're at a point in the cycle where it's true, the aggressive recovery and spread product is kind of behind us. The roaring back, uh, the high yield bonds and even investment grade corporates, the spreads coming in from historically cheap levels to the rich end of the range, that has largely happened. Um, but what typically occurs going forward at this point in the cycle is the spreads stay tight. They stay tight until you're actually going to go into the next recession. And it looks like um, we're going to be in expansion for some time. And so I think you may not want to be as long in terms of spread duration. You may not want to be in as uh, long a duration uh, paper. You may not want to be in some of the lower spread long duration paper. Um, But you may find your intermediate corporate bonds, uh, investment grade or high yield, um, your higher quality structured product like your CLOs and so on, uh, and commercial mortgage backed securities uh, end up outperforming. And so a bias towards credit product, um, I think, uh, still makes sense at this point in the cycle, albeit not to the extent that it did a while ago. It's going to be slower gains, but, but nonetheless, incremental income. And I think there'll be opportunities in emerging markets as well, Um, but it's going to be more difficult there because uh, many emerging market countries uh, were running a little bit bigger deficits than, than they should have been before the crisis, and they're coming out of the crisis with higher debt burdens, big budget deficits, and more dissatisfied electorates. Um, that are not supportive of uh, conservative fiscal policies at this point, so there's going to be you know ongoing credit pressures there, um, but a lot of uh, uh, aggressive pricing has has happened in local emerging markets and hard currency, So I think there'll be opportunities there as well.
0: Fantastic. Um, can you just talk a little bit about PGM? How long has PGM been in Australia, and are there many um, funds available to inv- investors? I don't know if you're a know about that robert or not uh, i know you work at a very high level global level perhaps um that's not something you can answer
1: yeah well um you know go back i can recall uh, australian clients from before the turn of the century um but may not be you know well known um because we're operating at the wholesale level and so uh we've had uh you know for the last several years uh, investment grade corporate mandates, you know, spanning from there through emerging markets uh, to a very high quality government bonds and even a global. Um, but it, you know, it tends to go through your, your large institutional uh, investors there, and we're, we're more at the, the wholesale level.
0: And just one last question, and I can't go, we can't finish up without me asking this. I'm just wondering what, what life's like under Joe Biden and do you have any thoughts on his economic accomplishments today?
1: Sure. Um, well, I think the United States is, is really entering, um, you know, a, a very tight political cycle world of where, you know, you have Clinton for eight years, you have Bush for eight years, uh, then you're into to Obama and now to Trump and then you swing to Biden. And um and while Biden is there and he he's not particularly inspiring, um uh, uh Trump is very popular. And so you can almost see where 4 years from now you're going to swing back the other way. So, um you know, be on the on the textural level, you know what's it like. I think Joe Biden, you know, kind of looks like he may be a lame duck. Um, you know, in incredibly short order, you know, if and as they get some of the infrastructure through, um, their majorities are, are very thin. Um, I'm just looking from the center. I'm not particularly biased one way or the other. I like good policy. Um, but you already see they're losing their thin margin as some of the Democrats, you know, are, are reluctant to back the uh, program. So I think um, you can, it looks like you can, Count on maybe getting some movement on these infrastructure programs. They're going to be very low impact, spread over very large number of years. Um, and then we'll go back towards more of a, a gridlock, uh, like we've become accustomed to with a lot of surrounding noise. That's
0: really great. I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. We're really honoured that you would make the time to talk to us, uh, Robert. And thanks very much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Fixated, the Fixed Income podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to join us again next week. Still hungry for more fixed income news, views and education? Then visit fixedincomenews.com.au and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to have the latest news delivered right to your inbox. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Moran and we'll see you next week on Fixated, the Fixed Income podcast.